Hey friends, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and, of course, the greatest of emergency medicine. We just want to keep you guys up on the literature, and to do that, we are here to spoon-feed it to you. Now, let's spoil everything we're going to cover. First off, your own height isn't that far to fall, but you can still break bones. Second, is it harder to resuscitate a child or an adult? Third, what's the cheapest way to manage a primary pneumothorax? Fourth, patients with severe hepatitis are at risk of all kinds of things. Would some prophylactic antibiotics be of any help? And fifth, a score to predict the risk of very early bleeding in PE patients. Now, if you are hearing this right now, then you are not currently a Journal Feed subscriber, and so you will not be receiving the full Journal Feed podcast, only getting a portion of the past week's articles. Don't worry, they're all good articles, but if you would like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then you'll have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org. And recall that we never want money to be a barrier to better patient care, so if you're having any trouble affording a subscription, get in touch, we can help you out. This is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which this week were brought to you by our authors, Amanda Matthews, Megan Hilbert, Millie Koss, and Clay Smith. So without further ado, I bring you the first article titled Cervical Spine Injuries in Adults Over the Age of 65 Years After Low-Level Falls, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Now, the most common height that most people get to fall from is their own height. I mean, it's literally your height. It's the only height that you get to own. But elderly people do a lot of falling. They're very high risk for it. And deceptively, your own height, it doesn't sound like a very long way to fall. So when elderly people fall from their own height, how often are they breaking their necks? Literally. To address this question, the authors did a systematic review of studies which included patients over the age of 65 years old with witnessed low-level falls or an unwitnessed fall of less than 3 feet where there was an outcome data on cervical spine fractures reported. Now, they found 21 studies from which the pooled prevalence of cervical spine fractures was roughly 4%. I'm going to say that again, 4% after a low-level fall. They went on to meta-analyze the data to see if there was a difference between those with a GCS of 15 or not. Now, surprisingly, an abnormal GCS was not associated with a higher chance of C-spine fracture, which is interesting because I would be way more eager to scan the neck of any elderly patient with an abnormal GCS. Now, of course, these aren't necessarily all comers to the emergency department. These studies were mostly all validation studies for typical rules that you use to clear a C-spine such as the Nexus or the Canadian C-spine rules. That means that in neurologically intact patients without any neck pain, the prevalence might not be as high as 3 or 4%. But now that we're talking about decision rules, well, you know, there's evidence questioning the use of Nexus in elderly patients, which might make sense given the prevalence of fractures that I just talked about, though technically you can use it. And the Canadian C-spine rule, well, it does take age into account, and it recommends scanning every patient 65 years old or older. It would have been kind of nice to see this age stratified a little bit. Like, I can see myself scanning every 80-year-old who falls. But every 65-year-old is a little bit less convincing. Though, if you're following the Canadian C-spine rules, then you're going to be doing that. Regardless, your threshold to scan the C-spine of an elderly patient who falls, no matter from what height, essentially, should be quite low. In a spoonful, the prevalence of C-spine fractures in elderly patients with low-level falls was 4% in the systematic review. 
And then the second article titled Comparison of Resuscitation Quality in Simulated Pediatric and Adult Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest, OCA, out of the JAMA Network Open. Now, if you're scared of sick kids, you are certainly not alone. Many people confuse the fact that kids are different and think that means that they are more difficult. Often different can be enough to make it more difficult for you, though. Because, you know, they're not quite little adults and children have their own considerations. As pediatric medicine advances, the resuscitation of children is only getting more specific and likely less similar to adults, which could certainly make people less comfortable with resuscitating children if they don't do it very often. Perhaps this is part of why the mortality rates for pediatric OCAs have stagnated a bit in recent years, while adults have continued to slowly improve. This study wanted to compare the performance of first responders in cases of pediatric versus adult out-of-hospital cardiac arrests to find areas for improvement. The study was done in Portland, Oregon, with seven EMS agencies with EMT and paramedic-trained fire crews. They had their crews participate in four simulations done in a random order. An adult female in a shockable V-fib arrest, an adult female with a PEA arrest, a school-age children in VFib, and an infant in PEA. Each case was assessed by a pediatric emergency physician or critical care-trained physician, as well as other observers to monitor teamwork and participation. And then finally, they also had all of the participants fill out surveys to measure their own thoughts on the experience. In both of the pediatric scenarios, there were delays in administering CPR, giving bag valve mass ventilation, getting vascular access, and initiating epinephrine compared to in adults. 55% of the time, an incorrect mask size was used compared with only 2% of the time in adults. Not something that you want to mess up, really, since, of course, the majority of pediatric arrests are going to be due to airway issues. 20% of pediatric cases had dosing errors in epinephrine and the defibrillation dose. Of course, not surprisingly, chest compressions were also just not deep enough 58% of the time, which we already know from past studies is not that surprising because we are notorious at giving bad chest compressions. All this leads to only 13% of the pediatric simulations being defect-free, that is, without mistakes, compared to 69% of the adult cases. The participants themselves reported that the pediatric PEA arrest case was the most cognitively difficult. Which is a shame because this is pretty common because, like I said, airway issues could be PEA. You know, little kids don't have that many cardiac problems. What the study concluded was that pediatric resuscitation requires a higher cognitive load. I think that's a bit unfair to say. I think that pediatric resuscitation, like kids in general, is just different and not necessarily more difficult. I wouldn't want to scare anybody by saying that it's harder and making them more nervous than they have to be. You need your resources on hand, of course. You need to be prepared with different sizes of equipment, how to measure them, have a Braslow tape available for your medication dosing. With proper practice and training, pediatric resuscitation will surely be as routine and repetitive as normal old adult ACS. In a spoonful, this study found that EMS agencies in Oregon struggled more with pediatric out-of-hospital cardiac arrests than with adult cases, and they made more mistakes while they were doing it as well. Okay, that's all we have from this week. Let's do a quick wrap-up and just summarize everything we learned. From the first article, even if your elderly patient didn't fall very far, their C-spine is still at significant risk. In those scanned in the systematic review and meta-analysis, 4% of elderly patients had a C-spine fracture from low-energy falls, 
and GCS was not predictive of injury. Then from the second article, these EMS agencies struggled much more with pediatric resuscitation than with adult cases. I think that instead of concluding that pediatric arrests bear a larger cognitive burden, we should instead conclude that EMS agencies need more pediatric resuscitation simulation practice. Okay, that's all we've got. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where I encourage you to read them yourselves. The newsletter is the best way to make the podcast, though, into a bite-sized nugget of space repetition. If you're feeling like you missed out, you'd like to hear more of what we're talking about, uh, quite a bit more, you only heard two of five articles, then you can come and join us in the members feed. Our goal here is for you to read less, learn more, and save lives, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.